Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray. Dear Sovereign God, we thank you this day for the way that you call us to account. Grant us grace through our faults and failures and stand beside us in our suffering. Lord, as you hear the cries of our longings and laments, we would ask this day that you break your words small, fit for our consumption. In your name we pray this. Amen. Over the last two weeks, we have dug into the first chapter of Lamentations. And as we dive into chapter 2 this morning, the tone changes a bit. Jeremiah begins by writing Lamentations chapter 1 from the perspective of Jerusalem and crying out as a funeral dirge. as he stands over the body of the dead city that once in all her glory has now been laid in the dust. And then the end of chapter 1 kind of transitions into the culpability that the people of God had in its fall. But as we jump into chapter 2 and the tone shifts a bit, it draws away from Jeremiah's actions or draws away from the actions of Israel and rather focuses in on the actions of the Lord. The Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy. The Lord has become like an enemy. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the water, the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand. From destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament, and they languished together. Not only do we not appreciate being confronted with our faults and failures, not only do we not appreciate being confronted with the culpability, the ownership that we have in the consequences for those actions. But what sometimes is almost worse to bear is the consideration of the one who actually carries out that judgment. As a parent, or as a teacher, as a mentor, aunt, uncle, in that role of authority in a child's life, it plays out like this. 
Don't hit your sister. Do your homework. Wash the dishes. Clean your room. Make sure that you put your best effort into everything that you do. Don't cheat. Don't lie. And then the consequences that come with that usually are followed with, if you don't do these things, then X, Y, and Z are going to happen. You'll get sent to your room. You'll fail your test. You'll get grounded. You'll get your devices taken away. Whatever it might be. And as the authoritative voice in that situation, you're confronted with this dilemma because you love and care for that child that when they act out in rebellion, when their actions are outrightly offensive, disrespectful, disobedient, and when they do the things that they know they ought not do, then you are confronted with the dilemma of, do I follow through on the consequences? Or do I relent because I love and care for them? Do I go easy? I mean, I know I said that if they didn't do the dishes that I would take away their devices, but it's so much easier on me if they keep those devices. See, we have a situation with Jeremiah riding out in lament over this terrible situation that has taken place in Israel. Time and again, God has said, if you do not follow me, if you do not remain obedient, if you act out in rebellion, there will be consequences. If you would rather look like the foreign nations around you, if you would rather forsake me for foreign idols, then when I hand you over to them, don't be surprised when the judgment is more than you want to bear. Time and again, God has warned them through his judges, through his prophets, And yet, nonetheless, Jerusalem still falls and the God's people are cast out into exile. See, it grieves a parent when they have to apply the consequences for the child's actions. The old this is going to hurt me just as much as it hurts you. And the kid goes, yeah, right. Just because you can't see my broken heart, just because you can't see the pain that I carry from your actions, doesn't mean that it hurts any less than the discomfort and pain that you feel. And sometimes even more. And in this situation, as the people of God have disobeyed and they've acted out in their own ways and against God's, and God 
Let's loosen the floodgates and all hell rains down on Jerusalem and the people of God watch everything that they have taken pride in get completely and utterly destroyed. And yes, it was the Lord that allowed it, but it was for the people's own good. We don't like the laments of lamentations because once in a while when we read Scripture, these are the things that are easier to skip over. We like the God of praise, the God that we give thanks to. We like the God that heals, that we see offer miracles. The one that casts out the demons and makes the storms still. We like that God. We like the God that speaks order into the chaos and that brings everything out of nothing. We like that God. We like the tame God. But when we are confronted with God's sovereign nature, where he is both sovereign in our suffering and in our celebration then we start to squirm a little bit and we kind of just like to avoid that part where maybe in our suffering, maybe in our lament, we're called to set aside our privilege, to set aside our power, to set aside our pride And recognize that we are nothing without God. And that outside of his will, everything else leads to destruction. See, there's this phrase that's used frequently in the Old Testament where it says that, and God gave them over to their sin. He gave them over to their worship. And what that means is is that he's stepped back and allowed them to receive the consequences for their own actions. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. Does this sound familiar? Or perhaps if that does not, He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor. In the house of the Lord is on the day of festival. 
How about that? Does that ring any bells as the American church cries out over the decline of Christianity in America? As the Western church cries foul as attendance drops and the rise of the nuns continues to increase, the nuns, those non-affiliated with any sort of faith-based tradition, And as a church, as a body, we cry out and we go, well, what are we going to do? How are we going to solve this problem? We have got a three, four, seven-step policy to make sure that we can solve this problem and stand forth in victory. It's up to us to save the church. And yet we've become so hyper-focused on what happens on our side of the kingdom that we cease to see the way that in Asia and in Africa, the Christian faith continues to spread and explode like wildfire as the gospel takes root and grows. And then as these new and different perspectives that have risen up once again, that were once the foundations from which we came, and they speak back into the church with a different perspective and a different voice, and a voice that makes us uncomfortable, and a voice that sets aside some of the things that we have been proud of, and actually calls us to pay more attention to the margins. Give greater credence to other cultures. That what we see and lament are the things that make us uncomfortable, but we are actually called to stand beside our neighbors and the things that make them uncomfortable, that they suffer, that they are oppressed by as well. That we are common creatures from the same creator. See, what's hard about a passage like this today is that the sovereignty of God challenges us to see that if God is faithful in keeping his promises of judgment, then by that we also trust that he is faithful in keeping his promises of salvation. That we don't have a God that is wishy-washy. We don't have a God that decides kind of, well, I like giving them the good things, but I really don't want them to suffer any of the consequences of their actions. And so we say there's so much suffering. People hurt each other. We, How do we best? There is a virus, if you don't know this, that is a pandemic. How can this be? How does God allow these things to happen and stand by and watch? See, it's not an either or. 
if we trust that God is faithful when he says that he will send a way, that he will send a means of salvation, that in the Old Testament when they looked forth to the Messiah, as we see in our gospel from the Samaritan woman at the well, that then when Jesus actually arrives and he says, I am he. I'm the one you've been waiting for. That even though we have not seen him, that we still trust and believe and have confidence in the salvation that we receive through him. And if we can trust that, and we can trust the sovereignty of God in our sufferings, then what does that mean for our faith? What would happen if we believe that God reigns sovereign over both, there we go, over both our suffering and our celebration? It means that we have a God that is present in, with, and through all things around us. That when he says that I will never leave you nor forsake you, that they aren't just empty words, but that they actually mean something. And that you experience that something when we gather together within the body of Christ around his word and as we receive his gift at his table. That even in our longings and laments, we still give God all the glory, now and forevermore. Amen.